afternoon, everybody. Welcome back to Other Minds and Hands. This is episode number 54 and session two of our openings series. So this is, uh, of course, if you're just joining us, we decided to do uh, a sort of a, 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 a series of close discussions, uh, doing some careful analysis of the relationship between text and film looking at um, and the kind of case study that we have chosen is openings how do they begin so last time in our first opening session we were talking about the hobbit we were looking at the uh the text and the rankin bass animated hobbit uh and then at uh the peter jackson first hobbit film there um so today we're moving on to the fellowship of the ring and we're talking again about the text plus two adaptations, the Bakshi animated film of 1978, and uh, of course the first Peter Jackson, the first Peter Jackson film. Um, so that is the topic for today. I want to start by saying what is obvious. And remember, we were kind of hedging all over the place and trying to like give homework for this for last time because it was. Um, super complicated <laughs> right? it was uh, that is like the question of what counts as the beginning exactly yeah and i feel like homework has to be a loose term with mm -hmm. everything we're talking about we're going to give you some things that i think we're going to try to look at too right. and just talk right. around everything i feel like before we get too far should we say at the start we're going to have a schedule change next week oh yeah let's see yeah say at the beginning and the end um so Due to change, mostly changes in my schedule, my driving my son around after school schedule, um, we're, I, we're, we're going to need to change the day. So we're going to shift. Hopefully this will work out okay. We're going to be at a similar time, but we're going to shift from Thursdays to Mondays. Um, so instead of being on Thursday, we're going to be on Monday. And we're also going to experiment moving back by half an hour. So up to, um, so it'll be 4 o'clock Eastern instead of 4.30 Eastern. Um, so that it's a little bit, little bit on the earlier side. I might, so I might be a little more conscious by the end of our time, but exactly. we'll give it a whirl. We'll give it a whirl. Exactly. Yeah. So there's, uh, there's, uh, yeah, there, there's the, uh, the risk of my being late coming home from picking up, uh, my son at school, but the benefit of Maggie being more awake still at the end of the broadcast. So, um, so yes, the idea is that it will start next Monday. And then we'll stay on Mondays. I mean, if something else changes, we might have to change. But uh, but we want to at least experiment with this and see see how that goes. So yeah, in the coming week, we'll plan for four p.m. But just know that there might be some flexibility, just because life and yeah, Merlin yeah. might be chaotic. You never know. You, you know. But right now, we got this guy. So <laughs> I know everybody likes to see him. So yeah, we'll be starting this coming Monday. Yeah, yeah, excellent. Okay, so that that'll be this coming Monday. Now. So homework. homework. So let's talk about beginnings. Yes. So basically, all in a sense, all three stories have a prologue and a proper beginning, right? Yes. Um, uh, Which is interesting. That all three have a prologue. Yes. Although the prologue is so, if we categorize the beginning now again, I. I have to admit, when I was re-watching re the Peter Jackson film, I always forget how long. The prologue is nine minutes long. I mean, it's ju just like we were talking about the huge, super long prologue um, at the beginning of the Hobbit film. Um, and this is, it's more 
print as it gets more detached, uh, right? The prologue of um, the Hobbit film that we were talking about includes also the Bilbo and Frodo frame, right? So you've got that that plus the like historical, um, you know, Smaug arriving at Erebor um, recap thing that happens at the beginning here. So that's kind of like setting us into the characters we know as an audience, but also setting us into the world that this exists as a general viewer. Right. So he had, there, there were those two things going on in the Hobbit uh, film prologue here. We're just we're going from, you know, it's Goadriel's voiceover description of the history of the Rings of Power and of the ring and how it comes to. And then if you want to call it that, the proper beginning of the film is with Bilbo. Right. You know, going into Bag End, we get all this. Um, really slow panning around Bag End, right? Uh, and uh, hearing Bilbo looking at the, you know, the map, panning up from the map, right? You know, in the way that it does. Um, so really kind of placing us within Bag End and Bilbo sitting at his desk writing and what he's writing is concerning hobbits, right? And that, of course, is the prologue of the the text. Um, so the, to me, the first interest, the first and most interesting thing about the text comparison, like about the prologue, right? It is, I think that neither prologue, neither film prologue is anything like, uh, the text yeah, prologue. Absolutely not. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the text feels more like an anthropological text, you know? <laughs> yes, yes. It's... When I read the prologue, this is why... So when I was starting my Exploring the Lord of the Rings Volume 1 book just this past year, I started off just skipping the prologue. I'm like, I'm just going to start with Chapter 1, and I'll come back and oh. do the prologue later, kind of lump it in with the appendices, because that's how I always think of it. Because it okay. actually seems to be sort of framed very similarly to the appendices. Mm -hmm. um, like, mm -hmm. here's a bunch of extra information that you might be interested in, right? Um, Tolkien and the publisher made the decision to include this material as a prologue instead of, with the second edition, instead of um, including it as one of the, you know, in the appendices. Um, but again, but it does similar work and has a similar kind of feel. What it is certainly not doing is here is the historical background information essential for you to understand the plot of the story that's coming, right? Yeah. In fact, from one end of the of the prologue to the to the next, it almost assumes you've already read the book. Yeah. Um, far from giving you what you must have in order to understand it, the only, of course, possible exception to that is the the summary of the Hobbit that's in there in case people haven't read the Hobbit before. Um, that's preparatory in that way, but even that is not simply purely preparatory. It's also there's also a good deal of retcon that's going on in that yeah. uh, in that section as well. So he's doing other kinds of work, but again, it's certainly not the let us tell you about introduce you to the Ring of Power and the Dark Lord and how he came to lose the ring and all like all the stuff um, that both of the both, both the of the films do. do. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's really interesting just to look at those adaptations, which are a long time after, but it's, it says something about a viewer versus a reader. I think that mm -hmm. 
we need you to understand that there is a deep mythos because we don't have the time of the text to make sure that you're aware of that, which you get a lot of. I mean, even the prologue to the text for fellowship, I feel like is so anthropological and just giving all these details. That's all still world building. Yes. It's just done in a really different way with a yes. filmic adaptation. We're yeah. just going to tell you all of the history rather than tell you the minute details about the different hobbits and their lineage and things like that. Yes. And the the history that it tells you, it does a lot of background history, but it's almost all exactly history that you don't need to know. Right, <laughs> right. right. So you just really, it won't help almost at all. But what I love about it, though, is the tone, you know, like how they talk about the Red Book and how yes. they give it all the different names. Like, oh, yeah. You know, we both studied medieval literature early in our, uh, mine was early in my academic career. That was my master's. And just like looking back through all those books and thinking about like the black book of Kamar then and the white book of Hengst and all this stuff of like, yeah. that's exactly what he's doing. He's just setting it in this con context that sounds so believable. It's rooted in something that seems like fact that you forget you're in fiction. Yes. And that's one of the best things you can do with adaptation full stop. Root it in something solid because it's a lot easier to accept. Yes. the things that kind of drift away from that. So like we're doing that. Like I, I love that. The tone of it is just really cool. It's kind of meant to bore you. Yeah. Like here's history. Yeah. I mean, you're hearing the writing like the So, I mean, one of the things that I was talking about a lot when I was writing my book chapters, because I did decide to do the prologue first um, when I was writing my book chapters on that, I was talking a lot about like, who's, who's talking like, wh whom are we reading within the text? Like when we get to chapter one, Within the frame, right, the sort of the fictional frame of the Lord of the Rings is that when we read when Mr. Bilbo Baggins of Bag End announced, right, we're reading this is this is hobbits talking, right? This is probably, um, you know, Bilbo's original drafts revised by Frodo, maybe touched up by Sam later on, possibly, you know, um, further uh, further editor added to in Gondor later on. But but this is in origin, the hobbits telling their story. Right. Yeah. The prologue is absolutely not the hobbits telling their story. The prologue is in the voice of a modern researcher who has discovered these ancient texts yeah. and translated them for our benefit. Right. So it's yeah. the, it's a it's a it's the tone of like an academic geek of the modern era um, yeah. who assumes that we're just as nerdy as, you know, we're like, must be his nerdy colleagues or something uh, who are interested in this kind of thing. Um, and I, I agree. It's a very, very endearing kind of approach. Mm -hmm. Right. But it's um, uh, but again, it's it's just it's like a thousand miles away from either the substance or the tone of the prologues that we get in the films. And imagine if the films had started with that tone. If you started with someone in a leather chair in a library talking about history, I would a hundred percent think I was watching a parody or drunk history, <laughs> yes. you know, or something. Like, there's no way. It's just really difficult to take something like that seriously. Whereas, this is an action adventure film. Yes, it is a fantasy epic, but it's action adventure. You got to start with action adventure. You don't start with somebody in a leather chair in front of a library you know, yes. while yeah. talking about history. No, agree, agree. I mean, that's, it would be, it is really interesting how much different the effect of that would be if you try, again, if if you do that thing, right, where you try to just like take what's in the book and do it on screen, yeah. it's gonna have, the more successful you are, the greater the gap between the effect of the book version and the effect of the film version. I, that's, it is a really interesting illustration of that. 
And when you think about it in terms of just like your own personal experience, like if I'm sitting down to read a book, I don't know, maybe it'd be different in the 50s and 60s when this kind of first came out and people were really starting to first get into it. But like when I'm sitting down to read a book, I have the time and the mentality to kind of sit there and figure this out as they're talking to me. With an audience, if you lose them in the first 10 minutes, you got nothing. You know, like you kind of have to start big. And if you start really small, that can be effective. Like I know I can already hear people being like, wait, but because you can start really quietly in, in right. films, but that has to be really engaging. Like right. you can start a simple person walking down a road where we know nothing and there's no soundscape, but all of a sudden I'm super invested in that single person and where are they going and what's wrong? And, right. you know, so right. there's a way to draw somebody into that single quiet experience too. But if you don't draw them in, in the first 10 minutes, then you're, you're stuck. You're going to suffer in terms of audience engagement. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. <clears throat> so, uh, thinking, continuing the prologue thing for a second mm -hmm. concerning hobbits is where eventually after their much more historical and action packed, uh, prologue sequence that we get in the Peter Jackson film, he does include that segment concerning hobbits right in the extended edition that was an extended edition ad right wasn't the, yeah, the theatrical went so. straight to the to frodo and gandalf didn't it more i think or so right or i, mean, I think it had some glimpse of him yeah. in, in the chair and stuff but i think that's my and it's, i have a hard time sometimes remembering the cinematic uh, version now but um uh anyway the Same. the point is the effect of, although again, they're they're calling back directly to the prologue of the Fellowship of the Ring with the phrase concerning hobbits, the effect of that section is wholly different. Again, thinking about that, the whole atmosphere of the of the text prologue that we were just talking about, Bilbo writing and narrating concerning hobbits and what he tells us about hobbits and how he tells us the what he says about hobbits is quite different, right? Like it's got the same title. But yeah. uh, but what he says and what the film is trying to accomplish there is very different. Yes, it's it's world building, right? It's an introduction to what is a hobbit, um, almost in some ways along the lines of what we were looking at at the beginning of the Hobbit text last time, right? With this, I'm not going to assume that you really understand what a hobbit is at all, right? Um, uh, but once again as we saw in the film adaptations of that passage last week, the films are much more direct or they get to the point more quickly instead of kind of being indirect and dancing around it, kind of putting together the pieces indirectly until it fills in the portrait. That's what, you know, the hole in the middle, the hobbit shaped hole in the middle that we were talking about last time. Um, so to here, Bilbo starts talking about the Shire culture and giving us the de some of which details are included in the prologue, but it's just, it is not at all how the prologue proceeds. Um, and of course, again, the tone of it. This is Bilbo, who is himself a hobbit, speaking of themselves. And we get, you know, like the scene of him bursting out laughing right in the middle of his, in, yeah. in the middle of writing the thing. It's, 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 it's designed, we are prompted by Bilbo's own response, right? To respond yeah. to the hobbits in a particular way with this sort of uh, affectionate similar laughter. Emotional. Yeah, so it's a very similar emotional ride. Yeah, yeah. But again, totally different from the whole perspective and experience that we have reading the prologue in the text. Yeah. 
Um, yeah. yeah. Now, um, one thing, by the way, I, I, we, we've not been saying anything about the Bakshi version. One thing I want to say about the Bakshi version, and this, like, this strikes me like I've never noticed it before. Literally every single time I watch the Bakshi version now. Every single time I watch the Bakshi, Bakshi version, I say to myself, man, I forgot the extent to which Peter Jackson is adapting the Bakshi film as much as he is adapting the text, right? I mean... I didn't know where you were going with that, but every time I watch the Bakshi, I forget that that first bit is so different than the rest. So it starts up and I'm like, do I have the right thing? So <laughs> right, right. I'm, just, I'm watching just, Shadow... Should I be watching Shadow Puppets? Should I be is watching that... Shadow Puppets? Is that, is, is that what... It, and it's very red. Are we very angry about this right now? Yes. And I always, I always forget that bit. And I'm like, oh yeah. And then we get to the, the very cartoonish Hobbits. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, but I think that's a really interesting thing to point out that Jackson is not just drawing on, on the, text. the text. Oh my goodness. He's drawing on everything that we know. And, you know, we even know it from the concept art. Like he hired the same artist that worked with Tolkien that designed the covers, that designed calendars and posters. Like he really leaned into all of the reiterations and adaptations that existed prior to us engaging in his film. So all of it was somewhat familiar to us. Yeah. Yeah. Which is very cool. Yeah. But of course, like, this is immediately relevant to this conversation because it was the Bakshi film that makes the pivotal decision to start with that historical prologue of the history of the rings. And, you know, that goes all the way from the forging of the, I mean, the idea to do that kind of prologue, exactly what to cover and to some extent, even how to do it um, in the Peter Jackson version is derived Directly. I mean, it is it is a very, very close adaptation of the Bakshi version. Yeah. Um, strikingly if it ain't so. Right, fix it. Yeah. Well, I mean, now, obviously, they fixed the visuals. Right. And, you yeah. know, no more red yeah. screen and shadow puppets anymore, obviously. The content. But yeah. if you can get beyond that. Right. If, if you can get beyond the obvious and radical difference of the, you know, the love, the generally lovely effects of the of the Peter Jackson um, prologue. Um, though interestingly, I find the um, I find the effects of the prologue age less well than most of the rest of the effects in the film for me. Actually, when I go back and watch it, I agree with that. It does look a little more staged than yeah. a lot of the other. Yeah, like the, you know, Sauron's helmet and, and the... And the face is turning to be in a circle. It just feels very choreographed. Yeah, and, yeah. yeah, yeah, it's it's a little... Anyway, yeah. um, the... Uh, um, but yes, I feel like... I feel like I, I can't even in some way give Peter Jackson sort of credit for making a decision to make the prologue that he made because... Because he's just doing what Bakshi did. I mean, again, some say doesn't know that it's not his own in any way. But I mean, he's running the Bakshi playbook there at the beginning. Um, he's he's just absolutely doubling down on that choice that Bakshi made. So thinking about it as a Bakshi choice, right? What was what is the Bakshi film doing? And here, I think the um, the red screen shadow puppet thing right that you were describing 
is a, a very fascinating and pronounced effect. Because as soon as we shift, um, there are those moments where we do get the full color animated cartoon kind of interrupting or even like connecting to the shadow play. Um, not much, but a little bit of it, right? Um, and then we get to the end of the prologue and we're transitioning to Bilbo Baggins and now it's all cartoon. And it's, 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 it's like, it's almost like uh, the beginning of the wizard of Oz, right? Yeah. Transitioning yeah. from black and white to color. It, it, it had almost that kind of effect when I was watching it just as last time I was like, Whoa, so vibrant, the Shire, so colorful. Yeah. Holy cow. We're, we're moving into the tales of Beetle the Bard from Harry Potter, where all of a sudden it's animated and it's just right. such a different style. I mean, that was blatantly telling a story, which is kind of what this is doing. We're telling you the story of what came before and the visual differences just completely separate it. So I think moving into that that animation is just a transition, but it completely separates the history that we have to tell you so you understand what's going on. And this is set in a big epic story to yeah. the story that we're actually watching. In Conceptually, that film. I kind of love it, actually. Yeah. The Bakshi. And one. like visually, I kind of do too. Like it's really quite fascinating to watch yeah. how it was made. And, you know, I, I meant to rewatch the um, Peter Jackson with the commentary, at least the opening, to see if he referenced Bakshi because I couldn't remember. But I would be curious to hear him talk about his opening and why he made the decision he did. And if he even notices that he really riffed off of Bakshi or if it's just so ingrained in his own. Oh, I think he has to have. Because, I mean, even things like that. aware, but. Yeah. I mean, the, the text is changed and there are, you know, obviously there's things that are, it's, I mean, it's longer. It's like twice as long as Bakshi's version. But, um, but again, like the, can, what I, the visuals of the Bakshi version are that's like conceptually what I love, right? Because it convey it manages to convey these are stories out of the dim past, right? We don't really know exactly what it looked like and exactly what happened. Here's I'm gonna narrate and tell you the basic events that occurred, and my narration will be accompanied by like the vague and stiff movement of shadow shapes who mm. will suggest like the dark Lord forging a ring, but they won't show the, you know, who the dark, you know, we, we won't get any details. All we get is a black outline. Right. And the whole thing in this angry, scary red background, because it's a scary story. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And all the way. And it ends of course, with the corruption of Gollum. Mm -hmm. um, and his uh, uh, screaming after Bilbo when Bilbo finds the ring, right? But yeah, I'm just thinking about tone, you know, it's it. that's one of the biggest differences between the text prologue and the Bakshi slash Jackson, just because Jackson's so close to Bakshi. But if you only watched the opening of those two or read the opening and then watched the opening, I mean, the Bakshi one is like a horror film. The mm -hmm. music is intense. It yes. is heavy dark i mean that's a totally different tone yeah. than the text yes. and that's a big decision you know the fact that they huge. just made that decision huge yeah i mean they want to build that especially again the contrast the contrast between the like angry saturated red with the shadows and the horror film music and then light happy music and colorful pictures of little hobbit houses 
cute, fat, cuddly little hobbit. Yeah. 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 Totally yeah. different style. Um, yeah. And that, uh, and it sets up, of course, like the way he transitions very, very abruptly, right? Um, into, well, I guess Bilbo goes on with his speech actually longer than I kind of expected him to, because uh, we cut straight to that. Um, but then he puts on the ring, which doesn't get concealed by there's like the twinkling lights to sort of suggest the flash of light that is uh, the blinding flash um that we're told about in the in the in the book um but it doesn't have the effect of the blinding flash in the book like everybody sees that bilbo just did magic and disappeared like the twinklies make it look more magical if anything right um and um uh but what i'm thinking of is it transitions very quickly to Bilbo confronting Gandalf and Bilbo starts going bad, like instantly. Like Gandalf just comes in and is like, hi Bilbo. And Bilbo's immediately like, what? No, you can't have my ring. You can't take, I'm drawing my sword and attacking you. Like it escalates incredibly, incredibly quickly uh, in that, in that, in that confrontation. Um, And so again, this seems to be, I'm 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 segueing to this because I, I think this seems to me the way in which now very quickly having done the you know bucolic Hobbit countryside transition out of the horror the red horror movie intro, um, but it, we immediately see the infection right we can immediately see the parallel between and even the way they're standing with Bilbo yeah. holding his sword and waving his sword looks like the shadow figures in the. Yeah. In, in in the beginning um, and the eyes the eyes change really quick really fast yes. early on that that's kind of your first flag it doesn't look like the the shadow puppets but it's definitely like a visual cue of something yes. not quite right yeah yeah but the, yeah but the sword and the dropping of the sword the swinging of the sword mm-hmm. and the dropping of the sword it's like reversed i think bilbo's moving from right to left towards gandalf and the shadow people wielding swords were i the ways, anyway the ones i was primarily noticing were moving from left to right but anyway whatever it's 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 uh it's echo. it's sort of yeah it's it's sort of an echo mm-hmm. and a parallel there um what jackson does so let's talk about differences between so like what jackson does to that prologue right from bakshi or from, from bakshi. text from bakshi, bakshi. he because on the one hand, again, it's it's very very closely parallel. You know, the Content basic really concept is similar, right? Yeah. But exactly the primary thing, the biggest and most obvious difference, is the horror element we were just describing, right? Yeah, the visuals fit in perfectly with the rest of the story we're about to be shown. Yes, yes, um, and the music is, of course, like it's the sort of everybody's first introduction to Howard Shore, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. And it's, but, but it's, you know, it's gentle. It's not scary at all. Um, it doesn't get scary at all until Sauron comes on the scene. Right. Finally. Um, Yeah. But even when Sauron comes on the scene, it looks like a war film. It's not painted red. It doesn't have lightning bolts in the sky. You know, it's, it's very realistic. Yeah. It's definitely set in the world that we're familiar with, not this kind of psychedelic red and black yes. music video situation. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, what 
what do we feel are the effects of the of these changes that he's made like the shift away from um where bakshi was obviously planning like one of the important ways in which he's conveying what he's conveying is through the contrast between the red screen horror movie Ooh. stuff at the intro and the rest of the film jackson choosing not to have that contrast the only the only thing that kind of makes the prologue st- i mean obviously the whole narrative doesn't proceed at that pace and in that way but kate blanchett's voiceover seems to me the only thing that really sort of in that sense separates the mm-hmm. the prologue from the rest of the it looks the same you know it's it's again the storytelling mode is different obviously but um uh but like the 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 look, the feel, the spirit yeah. of it doesn't feel significantly different uh, from no. the rest of the film. So, what's the effect of that choice? Do you think? Like, how does I mean, that change how he's positioning this prologue? It's positioning us in the world. Like we we are in it. We are experiencing it. This happened. Mm-hmm. We're not going to paint it differently. So it feels like it's from a history book or something inaccessible. They're very much putting the danger straight in front of us because mm-hmm. it's relatable to everything else that we're about to see. The Bakshi one, like I I should have done a little reading up on it before, but I'd be curious to like see what interviews and discussion there is. Cause it really looks like something the studio made him do. You know, Mm -hmm. it just looks like such a different decision. And I don't mean that's a bad one, but it's a really specific decision. Well, it is. You need to come in strong and give me more red on that title. And Well, but later on, and I didn't, I was focused on the intro, so I didn't rewatch this before class today. But um, as I recall, the Balrog attack scene is very similar with the red screen and the shadows and stuff. So, um it's, so as uh, we get closer to those those dark things, it yes. does reflect more of what we see in that prologue. Yeah, we see more of the Balrog, un- unfortunately, I would say, in the Bakshi film's case. The, rep- the visual re- representation of the Balrog may be, in my opinion, the most unfortunate visual choice in the entire uh, film. Oh, Jesus. Sorry, I had to remember it. I, I had to Google it. Yeah. Like somebody cool wearing boring. fuzzy boots and butterfly wings is just yes. not a Balrog in my uh, in my imagination. But yeah, 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 that looks like Wolverine with butterfly wings <laughs> and fire fists. <laughs> yes, Ow. yes, it's pretty bad. But notice we get much more detail than we did with the shadow puppets at the beginning, yes. right? And again, I I like the way that that establishes historical distance, right? The opening prologue is no more than a gesture at these things which we don't know and can't know. Um, And to some extent, I think Peter Jackson goes for a similar kind of effect. Um, Somebody was um, somebody was talking about how um, the um, when the rings are given out in the Peter Jackson prologue. The people are they're all just like posing with it. It doesn't it look it looks they're all staged. showing. 
Right. Yeah, exactly. Or like, okay, everyone hold up your ring together. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, like it's, it's all, and the, you know, the the horseshoe. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Exactly. Um, that seems to me a gesture in a similar kind of direction. Right. Um, you know, like you see the horseshoe of human Kings standing there facing you. And it's practically like, there's like subtext that says, um, not how they actually appeared, you know, like the, right. this isn't live footage Just of them here for story's sake, here yeah. for story's sake. Exactly. That again, very similar kind of effect to what Bakshi was, seems to be doing with the shadow puppets. Right. Yeah. But, um, but to me kind of less effective, um, less effective because it, as it does look like the rest of it, right. They do look real. Um, and, um, you know, it feels like we're seeing something real. Um, and anyway, there's and, and then the rest of the the prologue is going to be much more directly recalled. Like when we're watching the battle and Isildur and Isildur's death and Gollum finding the ring and all, all the Gollum and Bilbo stuff. That really is like snippets of another film that we're seeing essentially. I mean, like that, that whole part of it feels like, you know, last time on the Lord of the Rings. (laughs) And and even down to like, you know, the armor and and Mm -hmm. the hairstyles and, you know, absolutely everything. It just feels very much in this world. So when we do start to meet those characters, there's already like a visual connection to, Oh, that guy looks like that guy. So they must be from a space. And yeah. Right. Yeah, and of course, yes, um, uh, establishing characters like Elrond, of course, whom we will recognize when we see him. For, I mean, if we're attentive, attentive viewers, we will recognize him from uh, from the prologue when we first see him, just as we should recognize Galadriel when we first see her too. Um, right. So that that does establish some some visual connections there, but um, but yeah, so it feels like if if Jackson is going for any of that sort of distancing, that sense of I'm here relating a, we're here relating a story, which is a sort of a framing story. Um, that's it, the signals feel to me a little bit more, um, a little bit more confused. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, but, um, yeah. So yeah, like oddly, although it, seems counterintuitive to say it. I kind of like the Bakshi intro better. Like I kind of like the I I kind of feel that the Bakshi prologue is actually more effective at like it does what it's trying to do better, I think. Okay. Um I don't know. Uh, I find it really hard to compare them because they, they just are. they're very similar content, so that's an easier comparison. But yeah, they just sit in two very different spaces for me. I think they both do the job. But there is a real separation from the Bakshi one that I find difficult to kind of reconcile. Mm-hmm. And I do like it. I mean, I kind of want to use it for classes as like visual examples and things like that. It's just really cool filmmaking. It's, it's right. a neat style. But it's so different that it took me out a lot faster. Mm-hmm. Whereas the other one, you're just watching the story. I'm not really doing a lot of analysis. It's It's just giving me the content that I need to know to watch the next thing that's coming. Right. It does just feel like foundation laying, mm-hmm. whereas Bakshi does feel a little bit more artistic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's I think that's what I'm kind of liking about it uh, in that way. Um, 
let's look at the opening of the book. We started with the book last time. We started with the films this time, but that's okay. Um, we had to cover a little ground. And we'll, I imagine we'll probably reference Two Towers and Return of the King a little bit because we do have a little bit of crossover here, won't we? But yeah, yeah. let's look at some text. A little bit, a little bit. Um, yeah, most notably, of course, Peter Jackson took the Smeagol Deagle stuff, which was fairly, I mean, that got almost as much screen time as anything else in the, yeah. like almost as much as the Forging of the Rings in the Bakshi version. Um, and uh, of course that gets put in the, Return of the King, right? Yeah, it's the Return of the King. Um, yeah. uh, sort of opening scene of that. Okay, yeah. so the text begins. Text proper begins. When Mr. Bilbo Baggins of Bag End announced that he would shortly be celebrating his 111st birthday with a party of special magnificence, there was much talk and excitement in Hobbiton. Yep. Yep. Okay, so we are... The first and most obvious thing, again, since we started looking at the films, which made sense because both films are doing something quite different from the book, but quite similar to each other. So it was interesting to talk about that first. But now, um, the first thing we notice is that, yeah, what is happening here is completely in a different direction, right? Yeah. Um, It's not affected by anything that was told to us in the prologue either. No, we get no history. We get no background. We get nothing. We're not talking about the ring. We're not talking. So we we won't focus on the ring at all until the like two thirds of the way through this chapter. Um, And even then, it's not going to be revealed what the ring is and why it's important until two thirds of the way through the next chapter. Well, it happens maybe halfway through. But um and we're not going to learn the history and backstory until chapter two as well. Um, and Sauron is not even going to be mentioned until chapter two. So, like, you know, nowhere in this introduction is any of this um, is any is any of this uh, happening. Um, the frame is clearly, as Namus Arcanum is pointing out, the Hobbit book, right? We're starting with Mr. Bilbo Baggins of Bag End, whose name should be familiar to us because we've read The Hobbit, right? Um, and of course, uh, as Namus Arcanum was also pointing out, there's the title of the chapter, right? Which is a deliberate reversal. An unexpected party is chapter one of The Hobbit. A long expected party is chapter one of The Fellowship of the Ring. Um, so we're, we're clearly starting within that within that context. Yeah, yeah. Um, if, I feel like even if you weren't familiar with it, it would uh-huh. still land, though, right? Because we've got a long-expected party. I, I'm still assuming history, depth, time. I mean, it's such a great title because even if I have nothing, no context or knowledge of what this is beforehand, I'm still just going to understand that this is a big deal. And that's, that's a smart choice. Yeah. We can Bilbo Baggins of Bag End rolling trippingly off the tongue just sticks well as well. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So the, the fact that there is, something interesting about the relationship between Bilbo and the rest of the hobbits in Hobbiton mm. is also fairly clearly implied here. 
right? Um, even implied in the title, right? A long expected party tells gives us some context to understand the talk and excitement in Hobbiton, right? This is not the kind of talk and excitement that might come before a lynch mob or something like that, right? This is a different kind of, uh, this is a different kind of excitement, um, uh, you know, amplified by party of special magnificence, right? Um, yeah. But yet there's also a sort of a distance, right? There's It establishes a kind of like uh, Bilbo and everybody else. Um, there's the, the culture of Hobbiton and then there's Bilbo and he's sort of at the center of this story. Um, but their, um, um, their attitude towards him is what's important. And that's what we then get developed in the second paragraph, right? It's, it's about Bilbo, but it's about Bilbo through the lens of his neighbors. Right. Right. Bilbo was very rich and very peculiar and had been the wonder of the Shire for 60 years, ever since his remarkable disappearance and unexpected return. The riches he it really is. It's a great What sentence. a great... Like, he was rich and peculiar and weird and had adventures. <laughs> right. Like, Remarkable, unexpected. Lots of really weighty words in that, yes. uh, in that sentence. Yeah. The riches he had brought back from his travels had now become a local legend, and it was popularly believed, whatever the old folk might say, that the hill at Bag End was full of tunnels stuffed with treasure. And if that was not enough for fame, there was also his prolonged vigor to marvel at. Time wore on, but it seemed to have little effect on Mr. Baggins. At 90, he was much the same as at 50. At 99, they began to call him well-preserved, but unchanged would have been nearer the mark. There were some that shook their heads and thought this was too much of a good thing. It seemed unfair that anyone should possess apparently perpetual youth as well as reputedly inexhaustible wealth. It will have to be paid for, they said. It isn't natural, and trouble will come of it. Um, genre-wise, these first three paragraphs absolutely feel to me like the beginning of a fairy tale. Mm-hmm. Um, and because we even get these very fairy tale elements creeping in, right? Um, there is one genre of story in which perpetual youth and inexhaustible wealth are in play fairly frequently, right? Um, Those are fairy tale things, right? Those are, in fact, gifts that can come from fairies, indeed, right? Like uh, gifts or curses that that fairies can can wield. Um, And again, because of that, you have that familiarity, the same way we were talking about the anthropological stuff. Like, we know these stories. Like, that makes sense to introduce in that way because we're familiar with this vibe. Right, right, exactly. And even with the hint of uncertainty, right? There's there's obvious envy of Bilbo, right, among his neighbors. Um, mm-hmm. It's too much of a good thing, right, to have both perpetual youth and inexhaustible wealth. Um, but this sense, even though it's, it's clearly fueled by their envy, and so therefore we might kind of, uh, you know put an asterisk next to it because they're just, they're envious of him. Um, and yet this initial note is both describing the legendary and quasi magical status of Bilbo. Um, 
but yet indicating trouble's going to come of this, right? This is going to be... Um, the plot of this story begins with the person who seems to have received these phenomenal gifts, right? Oh, and by the way, he received them when he left yes. the mortal lands and went off into the strange and unknown... Unknown. ...fairy regions, right? And then came back unexpectedly. And when he came back, he now has inexhaustible youth or inexhaustible wealth and perpetual youth. Right. Yeah. Um, clearly, he's been touched by fairy in some way. And it is also a true premise of fairy tales that these yeah. things often have to be paid for. Right. And there is often a catch to these things. And sometimes the people who are blessed, who appear to be blessed in these ways, um, I, it turn out it turns out not to be uh, a simple blessing at all. Yeah, so having that phrase of of it's unnatural, no good will come of it. You know, even just saying it's unnatural being a negative thing. So they're they're already separating him out, but he's also the one that was the talk of the town. Everyone was really excited for this magnificent party, but this guy's weird. You know, yeah. it's it's this hand in hand thing. Like we're excited, but he's still other. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Which I don't think we get as much in the film. Not at all. Not we at don't all. get that separation. Not like, he's a little bit smug. He's a little bit snooty sometimes in some yes. of his phrases. But you really don't get that separation. You get he's a figurehead to a family and people want to be near him, maybe just as cash. But hey, don't right. think of him as an oddity. The only kind of separation we get is with the um when he's like hiding from the Sackville Bagginses in the Peter Jackson version, right? Um mm. that's like an evidence of some tension between him and some of his relatives. But even But that I just took of them like mithering him to get his money, you know, right. like exactly. wanting an extra party invite. It it didn't feel like because he's peculiar. Yes. Um because of the way in which it's targeted specifically at the Sackville Bagginses both times. Like it happens when Lobelia knocks on his door and he hides while Gandalf is there. Right. Yeah. Inside Bag End. And then he like runs away from them at the party. Um, yeah. You know, with Frodo. Uh, both times. It's just about the Sackville. It's it makes it sound like it's they're the problem, not Bilbo. Yeah. Right. Yeah. At least it's like certainly not obvious. He's, he's kind of othering himself. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Or, or even othering them, honestly. Yeah. Right. Like they're the they're the threatening ones. They're the unpleasant ones, um, because it seems that Bilbo's perfectly happy and well adjusted with all of his other guests. Right. They they seem to be the they seem to be the issue as far as we can tell. Right. Yeah. Um, or again, or at least that that's sort of left open as a as a as a potential reading there. So I agree. Bilbo's separation, Bilbo as like fairy tale hero with all of the complexities and kind of qualifications and, and uh, dangers that come along with being a fairy tale hero, um, being the mortal that goes into fairy and comes back and everybody finds you strange, you know, altered and strange when you return. Um, that's, uh, yeah, n I don't see any of that element really uh, in the film at all, especially with the concerning hobbits segment put back in in the extended edition, right? Where Bilbo becomes like the describer and spokesperson 
um, for all of hobbitry, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, so, again, thinking about the differences... Why is it, why does it make sense for both? I mean, again, it's not that they did this independently. Jackson was following Bakshi, but um, why does it make sense for both of the major film adaptations of this book to go so far away from this, right? And instead make the story the story is not about Bilbo, right? As far as we can tell from these first three paragraphs, this is a story about Bilbo. By the end of this first chapter, the fact that Frodo is his heir and the legacy that Bilbo leaves in the Shire, and then we continue the story following Frodo from the beginning of chapter two, that happens naturally enough in the book. The film not only doesn't do that transition in that same way. It doesn't have the focus on Bilbo. Mm -hmm. um, it gets there both times. It gets there. Um, but the prologue, I would argue that both prologues basically establish from the very beginning. We talk about what, what work are they trying to accomplish? You know, do they feel that they need to do with the audiences there? And the number one thing that I see is it makes the story into the story not of Bilbo nor even of Frodo, but of the Ring. Right? Let's let yeah, me start with the story but, of the Ring. I was going to say, but of Middle Earth, but the I think both work in that sentence. Yeah. You're right that it does, and here I would say especially Peter Jackson, um, because of what he shows and, and how much yeah, he shows. The, the time we spend in Hobbiton yeah. and the kind of fuzzing between Bilbo and the other hobbits and Frodo, everyone just looks friendly and lovely and happy. And, you know, there's a few smirks and sneers and things like that, but it's, it's generally a tight knit little community. So I feel like the time they spend on that is to give us a real strong foundation of how things change. Yes. Because we see the interjection of, you know, that black rider coming in from screenwrite and interrupting our scene and then everything changes. Like he's physically corrupting mm -hmm. the space, that, that frame and nothing's the same after that. And that works because it's a homogenous thing in our brain of this is pure, simple and beautiful. Yes. Which that all makes sense to me. Why is the book different? So the book, the effect of the book is to keep the focus of the narrative. This is clearly from chapter one into chapter two. This is clearly the story of Bilbo and Frodo, his heir. There's also a ring involved, and that turns out to be important, right? Yeah. But it's not the story of the ring. Whereas the prologues in both films take us from 
in the beginning, the rings were forged, right? And then the Dark Lord made his ring. And then the ring passed down to Isildur. And then it passed down to Gollum. And then Bilbo found it. And now we resume our story with Bilbo, the current possessor of our hero, the ring, right? Like that's the way the narrative flow happens in both film, in both films. Um, in the book, again, the ring is involved. It's clear that I'm not, obviously I'm not trying to say the ring is not important in the Lord of the Rings, but it is like, look at the opening. This is the story of Bilbo, right? Now you can see, yeah, we know why we will come soon to know why he has apparently perpetual youth. And his neighbors are quite right to think that it will have to be paid for, that it isn't natural, and that trouble will come of it. They're three for three on on, yeah, yeah. on, on that, right? Um, but uh, so yes, like the 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 hints of what the ring is up to and how the ring is affecting Bilbo are there in the opening paragraphs, but it is not the story of the ring. We only piece together the story of the ring well after the fact, you know, in right. chapter two, once we've already um, established Bilbo, established Frodo as his heir, um, the party as the transition between Bilbo and Frodo, um, with Bilbo preparing the party and hosting the party, and then Frodo, you know, um, in Bag End as people are coming in, establishing his claim to Bag End, um, kicking out the old rivals and the young rivals, the old rivals being the Sackville Bagginses, the young rivals being Sancho Pradfoot, uh, whom he uh, overcomes and kicks out. Um, but, um, yeah, so, um, I think it's, so, so why does the book do it this way? What is the book, what is the effect of the choice mm -hmm. that Tolkien made here? Um, Tolkien gives us the characters of Frodo and Bilbo, not to mention the whole Shire, right? And the birthday party and everything else without, remember the title of chapter two is called the shadow of the past, right? Um, the shadow of the past is exactly what has not yet fallen on the narrative, right? Um, we discover that there are, creepy things about Bilbo's ring. We can see, we discover at the same time Gandalf does. Gandalf is completely flabbergasted by what Bilbo is saying and doing um, when Bilbo is getting increasingly agitated and coming very close to threatening violence against Gandalf in that conversation. Um, Gandalf is surprised. We're surprised. It, and even if we've read The Hobbit, we're surprised because we saw Bilbo using his magic ring and it didn't seem like it was a big deal in The Hobbit. And now it seems, whoa, that ring, turns out that ring was somehow radioactive the whole time, right? And it's corrupted and damaged Bilbo in some way. Um, that's mysterious. That's ominous. That gives yes. us an uncomfortable feeling about the ring and what's to come. And maybe we do remember back to the to the, to the neighbor's saying it will have to be paid for, it, it isn't natural and trouble will come of it, right? Um, yeah. Again, all perfectly true. But, um, uh, but it, the shadow of the past, like the actual, 
this is a ring of power. The Dark Lord made this ring to rule the world, and with it, he will, you know, overcome uh, everyone and plunge the world into a second darkness. The shadow of that history, the shadow of that reality has not fallen over the narrative at all. We're left to discover the ring. The first thing we discover about it is that it's harmful to hobbits, apparently, as Bilbo demonstrates, and as we begin to suspect about Frodo. And then we only get more of the history once we've established, once essentially we've come to care about Bilbo and Frodo and what's going on with them. And that, by the way, also is the primary, the, the primary focus, even in chapter two, when we're getting the history, even chapter two doesn't do the whole prologue shtick. Um, this is what I'm actually talking about in the chapter of my book I'm writing right now. But um, a lot of people, if you, I, I, I haven't done this experiment, but it would be a fun experiment. The experiment would be if you ask a bunch of Tolkien readers to say in a paragraph, what does Gandalf come to tell Frodo? Like, what is the primary message that Gandalf has for Frodo when he comes to visit him in chapter two of The Fellowship of the Ring? Um, I think that most people would say Gandalf came to tell Frodo that his ring is the one ring and Sauron is pursuing it, right? Now, Gandalf does say that to Frodo, but that's not the primary thing. He doesn't get around to that for a long time. What he leads with, what his message is, is your ring is a ring of power, and that means it is deadly dangerous to you. And if you keep it, it's going to consume you and corrupt you, and you're going to be destroyed. And then later on, he's like, oh, and P.S., Sauron made it. Oh, and by the way, he's coming for you because it's his ring and he knows you have it, right? But that is not what And he... if he gets it back, the world's going to end. Yeah, yeah, and if he gets it back, the world's going to end. Yeah, P.S. Um, yeah. But that's not his primary message, nor is it... It's not the focus at the beginning, and it's not the focus at the end. Um, mm. Frodo is going to take the ring and he's going to go. He's going to, the whole like crux of the thing is the Frodo's choice. Is Frodo going to keep the ring? Is he going to remain the possessor of the ring? After Gandalf warns him that if you keep the ring, it's going to mess you up. Right? So Frodo, are you going to keep the ring? Right? Are you going to keep the ring and, and, and guard it? Right? Are you, he doesn't, conscript him to go to Mordor. He brings it up, right? Like yeah. eventually it's going to have to get chucked in the fire. That's what needs to happen. But then Gandalf explicitly says that quest might not be for you, right? It might be for mm -hmm. you. It might be for others. I mean, that's not today's problem, right? And he doesn't really prompt at all, does he? It's Frodo that kind of comes to the realization, well, the ring can't stay here. Yeah, Frodo does come to that conclusion. Gandalf pushes him to decide what to do. Yeah. Um, but that doesn't mean Gandalf is pushing him to leave, right? He's pushing him to decide, and he seems to not really know what Frodo is going to say. This is why Gandalf's reaction when Frodo says that, when he's like, well, I guess I'd better go and uh, um, go into permanent exile to try to protect everybody else from Sauron who's hunting for right. the ring. Gandalf is like, man, I never expected you to say that. Like, that's a that's a more awesome answer than anything I was anticipating. <laughs> right. Um, 
so again, I think I think he's genuinely surprised. I think he didn't know what Frodo was going to say. But again, notice how even chapter two, in which we do get almost all of the material that was used for those film prologues, right? Almost all of it comes in in chapter two. Even chapter two itself is from beginning to end about Frodo and his relationship with the ring. And everything that we learn about it only serves to contextualize the danger that Frodo is in and the da- and the significance of his sacrifice and choosing to keep that danger, uh, the danger of how the ring is going to harm him, as well as the danger of servants of the enemy who might be pursuing it, right? Frodo is going to put himself in that danger in order to try to help keep other people safe. But again, the whole content of the prologue material that we get in the films is still, even by the end of chapter two, in a sense, and I say this cautiously, in a sense, a side note. It's mm. not the story not of the story. ring. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, I think that that's, um, uh, it's a fascinating difference. And so again, thinking about like, as we have talked about before, like what books do and what uh, movies do, it feels to me actually a little counterintuitive. That is, I would have said, don't films like us a lot to connect with characters? Like, isn't that what they want us to do? So like the idea of, the idea that the films take this narrative which is already focused on the people, on the characters of Bilbo and Frodo, and says, no, we're going to back off from that. We'll bring them in, um, though neither one of them talk about Frodo at all in the in their prologue sketches, right? We'll get around to Bilbo, but only in the context of telling you the story of the ring. You will be uh-huh. introduced or reintroduced to Bilbo in the movie, both movies, Um when you are told the final chapter of the rings of the history of the ring so far, which happens to include Bilbo because he stumbled across the ring in the dark. Um, so it does seem to be about where these stories, the film versions and the text version really want your focus. And it seems to be not on the people as much in the films, which is, which is interesting, which is a little bit weird to me. Which is a little bit weird. I'm also just now thinking about like, you know, the casting and stuff. They Mm. didn't get any major, major actors. Like an argument could be made for Sean Astin and Elijah Wood, but they were like famous children actors. They weren't massive. And like Elijah would have been in a ton of films, but most of them are pretty indie at this age. Everybody else not massive so like yeah. they in home is pretty you know, famous but in a in a kind of a right limited and way. and sean bean yeah he's recognizable yeah. but none of them are like tom cruise you know um mm-hmm. weird choice but everybody in the world knows him you know i know I, uh, I, I know just what you mean yeah and so you could see them kind of leaning into the ensemble thing that it is not an individual story it is a story of about the ring and these are the players mm-hmm that were involved in that story. And that is a really big difference. And somebody in the chat earlier said it's a romance, not an action adventure. And 
that's a really interesting distinction too because yeah we we aren't following a single person's right. inward and outward journey right we're we're taking part in this big adventure story that involves a lot of them it's but it's not about their growth right. their growth happens right. but that's not the focus right that's a that's a big poignant change it is it is now of course the films and I think especially the Peter Jackson film will get around to the focus on the characters, right? Um, yeah. The introduction... Well, they want you to connect. They just aren't they're, leading with that. They're not they, leading with it, exactly. Yeah, they're not milking it at the start. Yeah, so the effect is... Um, the effect is... I'm thinking of the Frodo scene, right? Frodo reading his book under the tree as Gandalf comes in, right? Um, the effect, it seems to me, is that when we meet and are meant to connect with Frodo, that extra scene, the the scene of Frodo and then Frodo meeting Gandalf and the conversation that Frodo and Gandalf have in the wagon on the way in, right? That whole conversation seems to me to be designed to sort of cement our relationship with Frodo um, to really place him squarely in our focus. But now we do it in the context of what we've already learned, right? Mm -hmm. um, so in short, I think that maybe the main difference or maybe the main way to characterize the difference is in how... how information is conveyed, like when and at what pace information is conveyed uh, in the films versus the books. In the books, we get the characters. We see that there are problems with the characters. We learn that that problem is the ring. And then we learn the history of the ring and how it came to be that the ring was creating these has is creating these problems and how big the problems in fact are right but we start with the characters and the problems that those characters are having when you start with the history of the ring then you meet the character who is untro like frodo i'm thinking especially who is untroubled by the ring he hasn't encountered doesn't you know possessed it yet right then when he gets it, there's this like tension, right? Because when's it going to happen? Yeah. 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 They create a situation. He, both filmmakers create a situation of dramatic irony where having yeah. been given the backstory, we now know more than the characters. Now we know more than Bilbo does about his ring. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, what's coming. We just we, don't know when. Yeah, Exactly. We certainly know way more about it than Fro Frodo is an almost complete innocent about this. Frodo's never even worn the ring. He's just kept it in an envelope all these years. He doesn't really give it much thought. Yeah. Which, yeah. again, very significant difference. Um, uh, yeah, very significant difference in the... Um, uh, Very significant difference in the way that the ring is. So, so notice also the effect of that choice by Jackson. 
is that we see any effect the ring has on Frodo starts then. Frodo's never even... Has he even touched the ring? I guess he did when he picked it up off the floor. Mm-hmm. But Frodo has been in physical contact with the ring for all of, like, two minutes before Gandalf drops it with the tongs in his hand and he puts it in his pocket and becomes the ring bearer, right? Right. Um, so we are seeing every effect that the ring has on him from scratch, right? We, The picture that we get of Frodo at the start is a, a genuinely before image sure. in the before yeah. after, right? Um, whereas in the book the first things we see even about Frodo in chapter two is how he is carrying on Bilbo's reputation for oddity, right? There are weird things about him too. And he starts to show the perpetual youth thing as well. Um, And we now have lots of reasons to suspect that trouble will in fact come of it. Right. Um, but we didn't lead with knowing the trouble. It's no. like releasing your monster first. Like that's a big thing in, in scary movies and filmmaking and stuff. Like you never reveal the monster. The longer you can keep the monster hidden, the better it is. Cause the suspense, this is the opposite. We know the monster. We just don't know when it's going to yes. hit. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's really interesting. That's really mm. interesting. So the book is asking us to, Again, it's really about framing, isn't it? Like how these things are being framed. What, what What is framing which? Is the history of the story framing our initial relationship with Bilbo and Frodo as characters, as it is in the films? Or is our initial relationship with Bilbo and Frodo as characters framing our knowledge and understanding of the ring, mm. as it is in the text? And the yeah. And the the why did we have to make those decisions because when i think about them they both work i have no problem with either they both work really well to me to tell a story Mm -hmm. but to sit around a table with a script and talk about development and impact and to say we're not going to do this we're going to do this instead that's a that's a big decision so leading with a monster either means that they didn't think the character would work as well in a visual context or the the conflict wasn't strong enough to be seen fast enough. You know, there's, there was an issue in in their mind, I think is what would have had to have come up. So they had to highlight what the issue was. We have to pull that out and make it a bigger deal. I just realized something. I just realized something. The prologue of the fellowship of the ring film is why everyone thought the ending of the return of the king was so distorted and long because the prologue of the fellowship of the ring announces the story that you're watching the story of this film is the story of the ring when the ring is destroyed the story's done right and then and it's then like we just keep going and it keeps going it keeps going and people are like why do we get all these other weird endings whereas if the story is, this is the story of Bilbo and Frodo, his heir, their story's not done until they get on the boat at the yeah. end. Like, that's yeah. that's 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 meant to be the end. It's obviously the ending. It's the satisfying ending. But, yeah, when you change the story to be, this is the story of the Great Ring and what happened to it. 
and also a bunch of goodbye sayings afterwards that will extend for another half an hour after the, I mean, right. It's, they, they, they created their own problem with the prologue there at the start. I never really thought of that before, but I never really have either, but that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. And, and also why I always felt so, um, I could never get it. Like it wasn't just that I didn't, it didn't bother me. I, 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 I never had a feeling. I never identified. The, so I was never like, you know, people always complain about famously complain about the ending of the, of the, of the, the return of the king. Right. And um, it's not only that I did not share that opinion. Right. I was not conscious of having, of being in a situation where I'm like, you don't like it. And I do let's agree to disagree. Instead. I was always like, what are they talking about? Like, why would anyone mistake that for the end of the movie? It's obviously not the end of the movie. Um, and I, for a long time, I just, um, chalked it up to like, I know what to expect. And so I know that there's more to come. And so, you know, I was, uh, you know, I I was just prepared for it. Um, but I'm not sure. I, I actually, I think that this, that, that may also be a big, it never made sense to me because I was never thinking of this story as first and foremost, the story of the ring, but the prologue does prompt us to think that way. Yeah. Yeah, which that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah, Ooh. it's their own fault. Um, <laughs> interesting. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, we're getting close towards the end of our time here, and we we need to give homework for next time too. Yeah. Um, so first of all, a reminder in case you came in late. Um, big change for next week. We're changing the time of the broadcast. Um, so instead of broadcasting on Thursday afternoons, we're going to shift to Monday afternoons, Monday afternoons. And we're going to move back. So we're going to move back three days and half an hour. Uh, so we're <laughs> going to start at 4 PM Eastern time on Monday, uh, uh, for, for, for now, this coming Monday, this coming Monday. So that means there'll be another episode in less than a week, um, which will be exciting, which means, You have less than a week to do your homework. So here is the homework. We're going to continue our openings discussion, our our comparison of openings. And I I think we're going going to do the same number of films, right? It's probably foolish to try to talk about more than two films. Um, Yeah. We barely have time to talk about the three things. We barely scratch the surface of the three paragraphs we're looking at. Yeah. Exactly. (laughs) So. um, And this isn't even without us using visuals. Like, I feel like if this was a class, I would have multiple slides showing right. you screenshots and things like that but this this is what we're doing right now it's it's fun to talk about the small small scope exactly exactly yeah. the narrow focus here so we want to shift outside tolkien now and continue looking at the opening thing so we're going to do on monday we're going to do our our jane austen pride and prejudice discussion so we're going to which look... Corey and i've never talked about pride and prejudice so i think so, that's going to be a lot of fun so exciting so exciting yeah. Jane Austen, one of my top five favorite authors. I'm really excited. Um, so we're going to talk about the opening of Pride and Prejudice, and then we're going to look at the openings of the um, uh, BBC version. The BBC version, the 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 Colin, Colin Firth. Firth, and then we're gonna. It's interesting that Colin Firth gets all the credit for that. I know way, when right? Jennifer Ale really is the Jennifer Ale does show. an awesome job. Like she's, she's incredible. She's, yeah, she carries it. But Colin Firth is one that everybody hears about because it's parodied in so many places and referred to so often. But we right. know Jennifer Ellis is where it's at. Right. And he's Mr. Darcy. So, you know, anyway. But so and then we're also going to we're also going to talk about the Kira Knightley version. Right. Yeah. 
So yeah. we'll look at the opening of the Karen Knightley version, and we'll look at the opening of the uh, BBC Colin Firth version, and then and, and and we'll look at the opening paragraphs of the book as well. And we may reference other adaptations, but we'll try to just focus on those three. Yeah, we're trying to focus on those three. When you say opening, how how much are you giving? Like five minutes of each film, or do you want to give like a moment? Let's. Let's watch like the first 10 minutes. We can, it's, it's one thing yeah. that'll be interesting to see is the, what what we can see of the pacing of them <laughs> and how they're proceeding into the story and like where the opening sequence ends, you know, yeah. where we think it ends and, 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 and how they do that. So there's a whole other thing. We don't have time for this now, but there's a whole other thing we have not brought into discussion of just simply ability and resource for adaptation you know mm. bakshi did not have what peter jackson had <laughs> no. in technology no, or budget or you know and you know i talk about this a lot when i i teach on narnia where it's like the bbc version versus the walden entertainment version and you know we're talking about the bbc pride and prejudice is six hours of content whereas the kira knightley is two hours of content yeah. and there's going to be some pretty significant differences in storytelling purely because of format like rings yeah. of power versus peter jackson we have oodles of time which can sometimes be awesome and sometimes be problematic but just be aware of that i guess yep. as yep. about a tool in a tool belt like how many hours we have to tell a story is going to affect how much time we spend on something in an opening yeah but and if you're I, peter jackson you're going to spend three times as long as you need to for a prologue anyway so right right yeah. and i would say um for the book, I mean, I would recommend rereading chapter one, like the entirety of chapter one. I doubt we'll get all the way, you know, reading it. I doubt we'll get all the way into the conversation about visiting Mr. Bingley. Um, but it, I mean, I'm sure we'll make references to that opening scene as well, yeah. because, you know, that's the first action in the book, basically, is the conversation among the Bennets about visiting Mr. Bingley. So, um We'll, we'll probably t we're not going to like read the whole scene aloud, but we'll um, you know, we'll certainly look at the obviously the famous opening uh, sentence and, and the, the, the few paragraphs after that. Um, but um, but do make sure to reread re the first chapter uh, so that you can be reminded of uh, of all of those things. Um, uh, Bill, we'll do our best. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, we'll spend plenty of time on the first sentence. Such a wonderful sentence. Um, Beautiful. I haven't reread it in probably three years either. So it's been, it's been fun to dip my toe back and I rewatch it all the time, but yeah. Yeah. I reread in a long time. Yeah. I, I do a, I do a complete Austin reread every, every couple of years. Usually I just, uh, I, but I actually just did it just about within the last six months. I did my uh, complete Austin reread. So, um, nice. Well, that's definitely something we've talked about doing on Other Minds and Hands, too, because there's a lot in Austin to unpack adaptation-wise. Like, you think about some of the things that have happened to some of her texts and Mansfield Park, yep. Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. I mean, we've we've got some places we could go. Definitely. <laughs> yeah. Definitely. Definitely. Okay. So where we're going next week is Pride and Prejudice okay. on an earlier day, on Monday. However, one side note on the subject of places where we could go just wanted to mention the possibility um many of you 
have heard that I was consulting on the new Return to Moria game, uh, which is launching on PCs on Tuesday, um, so that the big launch of that game is finally happening happening this coming week. Um, and uh, I was just talking to the uh, some of the the developing development team today, and uh, we're I'm hoping to have uh, uh, one or two of them on the show to talk about um, adaptation. Um, in the uh, in a in the video game context, as we're thinking, is it's a it's interesting because of course it's a it's a fill in the blanks kind of adaptation. It's not just a uh, it's not just a reproduction, right? It's not ju- you know because it's a fourth age story, right? So uh, they're 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 writing new stuff. So um, anyway, we're gonna be uh, uh, so I will um, uh, gonna see when I can bring folks in to talk about that, and we'll have some. Uh, some fun video game uh, adaptation uh, discussion with Return to Moria folks uh, here pretty soon. So um, that will be coming up soon. Monday, Pride and Prejudice. And then we'll see when we can schedule them. Um, when we, do, we, we do want to do some other books as well. We could do other uh, uh, other Austins uh, after oh. Pride and Prejudice. Like I feel yeah. like we've just opened up a whole new thing of like, you know, we're kind of fly by the seat of our pants sometimes with this of like, what do you want to talk about tonight? I know I've been thinking about this. Like we could go for a long time down this route. Yes. Yes, we could. (laughs) But I like the interjecting, like this is going to be our default of like, okay, next week we want to talk about these books. So, you know, here's your homework. But occasionally I can very much see us being like, okay, we're going to have this person on next week because we want to talk to them. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So we'll we'll be interrupting our openings series to, uh, uh, to have a conversation with the return of Moria people. Other things might come up exactly. So uh, we will see what happens, but um, awesome. Thanks everybody. Thanks for joining me as always, Maggie. Appreciate it. Fun conversation. And we will see you guys early next week, Monday afternoon. Don't forget. Thanks everybody. Bye now.